0: Hello and welcome to this Nutmeg podcast, a version of the Scottish football magazine for your ears. I'm Daniel Gray and this time we're discussing Nutmeg magazine issue 16. I was joined by Nutmeg publisher and designer Ali Palmer and the journalist and author James Morgan. Plus, you'll hear from some of our writers, Giancarlo Rinaldi, Ginny Clark, Greg Gordon, John Sperling and the poet Stephen Watt. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Please consider contributing to the making of this podcast in return for various goodies. Do have a look at our Patreon page, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash nutmeg f-c. One supporter we're delighted to have on board is Total Football Analysis. They offer match analysis data, statistics, scouting reports and more to help explain what really happens on the pitch. Go to TotalFootballAnalysis.com to find out more. And deepest thanks to Mark Astaire for his support. Issue 16 is out now. Please see NutmegMagazine.co.uk. Enough of that. Here's the podcast. Q tape. Ali. Three months on since we recorded an online podcast, we probably deep down knew it was going to be the case for a while. But how are you coping without football now?
1: Strangely okay. Obviously, I had a nutmeg to deal with, which was, um, you know, kept kept me and your good self occupied. But it, yeah, it just feels like the longest um, close season ever. And <laughs> I don't I'm surprisingly not watching football. You know, I've seen people on social media. Talking about you know games that are on TV and um, and and I suppose because my life's I've changed it's it's changed a bit I'm doing different things and you know going out for walks more often so I've not watched as much as I thought I would I, I started watching the Scotland England uh, Euro '96 from last week I didn't quite finish it but I was going to go and visit my son and by the time I got there my son said he'd watched it and and was amazed how awful the football was Str- I'm strangely not. Missing football. Um, am I allowed to say that as a as a publisher of a football publication? <laughs>
0: no, well, well, it's the case for all three of us here that we we're still living football every day, whether it's producing yeah. nutmeg in our case, and then me writing about football, doing other podcasts as well, so it hasn't really gone away in that sense. The only time I get really moody is a Saturday, because yeah. it's not the act of the game itself that I miss, it's it's the thing lots of people have talked about, the routine a- absolutely, going off, yeah. in my case, around Scotland, or down to Middlesbrough, that's and true. seeing the same, that's what I really miss, the identity the belonging, but the other factor in not missing it as much at the minute is it's June, and there shouldn't really be football in June anyway, apart from true. the Euros or the World Cup, I guess. And what about you, James?
2: i Echo what you guys said, really, and you know, and and, and Joel said um, said it in his recollections of uh, you know what what the last couple of months have have been like. You know, there there has been a welcome break from it simply because it you know it can be all pervasive at times, especially when it's part of your job and you've got to you've got to come up with ideas on a regular basis and and things are moving at a pace and it's hard to keep track of what's going on sometimes. and um, so I've enjoyed the kind of the 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 opportunity to breathe a little bit. But at the same time, you know, that's had its limitations because you've got to come up with these ideas then in the in the in the absence of there being anything. And so you're writing a lot of uh, pieces around retrospective uh, events um, or the the SPFL vote row, which seemed to go on forever and ever. Um, and so a lot of the pieces you end up writing seem to mention the same things, coronavirus being another example of that. So I'm looking forward to having new things to talk about Um And my relationship with football has changed over the recent years because my son now plays. So our Saturday consists of, um, you know, an early start, get out, rush out the the door, get you know her brushed and matted down, and water bottles sorted and shin pads, and all of these things that are forgotten about in the last minute rush. And we go. um, He plays a game on a Saturday, and then you know. So I've missed his plaintive glances for a. For a you know a, a kind of um, a seal of approval, and I've also missed oh. my Fergie like glower whenever he does <laughs>
3: something.
0: Uh, Ali, that's you touched upon the uh, reconstruction of it there, James. One thing is Scottish football has continued to be entertaining. And ludicrous, and brilliant, and funny, even without any actual matches, hasn't it? It's still not dull, even though it's not here, which is quite a feat, isn't
1: it? Yeah, indeed. And and it it, it kind of made it hard for us when we're trying to pull this issue together as well, mm. obviously. Um, which um, uh, you know that hard thing of you know being a quarterly publication, we we can't really be very topical. You know, we can't mm. we can't risk touching on on um, ongoing stories within the game, but. But this time around, we had to somehow um, reflect on what was happening with, with, with COVID-19. So, yes, we could have pulled together a and a with a bunch of people. James, we, we started that by asking people a couple of
0: questions. What would your answers have been, had we remembered to email you? <laughs> the, questions were, the questions were, what have you missed about football and what would you like to see change when it returns?
2: Yeah, well, one of the things that I also miss is, and it kind of speaks to my new uh, status as a as a taxi driver from my son, but it's it, it's you know missing that long drive to to either a ground that you haven't been to for a long time or that you've never been to before, and just you know that that kind of anticipation of what is it still the same or what's it going to be like um and you know th- th- these things never really change they kind of uh, remind me of childhood when I would make similar journeys with my father to to watch. Um, our local team and we've I've son- since done that with my own son you know where we will go and travel down to England for a game and the most recent game we were at was actually at Recreation Park um, for BSC Glasgow against Hibernian. and mm-hmm. you know what I, what I really enjoyed about that was just the, the conversations that we would have prior to the game and then Getting to getting to Alawa and trying to find somewhere to park, and then you know just all of the kind of routine around it, just banal stuff, but just the routine and that sense of anticipation, not really knowing where what you're going into or trying to remember what you're going into and where to go. So I, I, you know, it's just the familiarity of that that I kind of I I also miss. As for what I would change, talking about what we've just. Um, alluded to or what you guys have just alluded to there in, in terms of the the, the vote and, and it's like you know the idea that that you know, of taking it less seriously that Chris observes and Chris Brookmar observes in his his piece you know but I'll never catch on of course you know you just need to look at the end so the recent months to see that Ali what did you
0: make of the responses we got to that opening set of pieces in the magazine
1: yeah I thought I thought it was great um, you know Varied responses, um, sort of emotional responses, humorous responses from from the likes of, um, of uh, Hugh McDonald, Stuart Cosgrove, um, Alan Patillo, Greg Telford, Joe Sked and many, many others. I thought it was great. Um, the one that kind of jumped out for me was um, uh, from Kenny Crawford, you know, the BBC reporter who most of us will hear um, during the week and at weekends, his lovely reflection of, because he's obviously turning up at grounds a lot earlier than any of us um preparing uh for his reports and just talking about the people he he was missing meeting you know at places like Capelo and Somerset et cetera. Et cetera. but anyway, it was great it was a some as i say something we don't do that often because it's quite hard for us with our kind of longer lead time um but obviously we knew this wasn't going away uh so it was easy. it was possible for us to to cover it properly uh I mean, we are at the same time doing Lost Weekend series on the website, which is sort of website-only content, uh, where people again just kind of reflecting what what this time is meaning for them and. Uh, various forms uh, so James any
0: other reflections on those early pieces I, I too loved I loved receiving them each a couple would come through a day and uh, Kenny Crawford's really really beautiful piece and I was I've just been enjoying Kenny's stuff in general until on Twitter the other day he called cheese on toast toast and cheese is this some sort of Scottish phrase that I've never come across before unbelievable
2: yeah I'm not the person to ask about that because I regularly have conflict with my wife about you know what what Certain things mean in the kind of ambiguous terms that you know end up um, with a you know a, a hurled brow at the end of the conversation, and you know, a cut or a kind of um, maybe a bit of a huff for some time afterwards, but yeah, I mean, I I, I love Kenny's piece too. Like you guys, it, it did capture that sense of that, the, you know. The, oftentimes we go for the football but really actually it's for the people who we meet there that, that makes it and, and that makes it the experience that it is it's that shared um, experience and I wrote a column about this uh, just at the weekend they're saying pretty much that thing that it, it's really that that's that's what you're gonna lose whenever without fans being there and it's the the idea that um, You know that you you you, this thing happens in the you know the absence of. I mean, of course, some some grounds don't have any fans in them. You know, anyway, but there's still going to be that hardcore. You know, and in some ways, that's almost more romantic because you're going to know practically every face there. So, um, yeah, that that really uh, struck a chord with me.
0: 16 then Ali something of a football grounds special tell us about those pages
1: yeah we'd actually thought about doing this um, long before Covid-19 so we'd you know when when the previous issue was uh, over the winter time we sort of thought we'd do a, a stadium special because it means so much to both you and I Dan and of course anyone else I mean uh, I've often thought personally that uh, I'm, I'm an air fan and it's it's almost the stadium I support more than the team, which I know sounds crazy, but you, you know the players change. Um, but this, for most clubs, for some of us anyway, the stadium stays the same, and going to Somerset Park for me is is almost as important as as the football on the pitch. So stadiums mean a lot, and yeah, we just thought we'd build this into a a bit of a special. Also in the back of. Uh, had I've heard Hugh Macdonald talk a couple of times about his love for Somerset Park. He, he did it on our own podcast with him uh, a year or so ago, and I heard him in Off the Ball once um, uh, talking about it and referring to it as the Sistine, the Sistine Chapel of the art and design of and function of old football, um which he refers to in the piece. Uh, so, yeah, we asked Hugh to to, um, to write a homage to the stadium. I, I think his, his brother, I think, is an air fan, so he does go quite regularly. Um, and built on that with, with uh, yourself, Dan, looking at Capelo, which I know is a stadium you love, mm-hmm. and uh, Giancarlo Rinaldi, who's written a lot for us over the years, uh, and his love of, of Palmerston Park. So it's, it's three classic old stadiums um, that that show what we love about football and you know, what, what, what it stands for. And, and I know football has to progress, and I know uh, stadiums have to change and have to improve, but Everyone still loves that experience of standing in a in a in a good old fashioned stadium where the the atmosphere is just so so different from 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 most of our modern stadiums.
0: Let's hear from Giancarlo then about his piece and Palmerston.
4: Well, I was I was kindly asked to um, write about a subject very close to my heart and, and very close to me geographically as well, uh, Palmerston Park and Dumfries, and really. I suppose what it means to what it means to Dunhamers, people from Dumfries and, and Queen of the South fans, it's it's a ground that's that stood, you know, that's that's been Queen of the South since pretty much the day they were the day they were thought of, and although it's gone through, you know, various incarnations, various. Upgrades and and lead turfings or whatever. It's still it's still pretty much the you know it's the home of Queen of the South it has been for over a century. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of history there and there's a lot of affection for me personally as well. I mean, I'm born and brought up in Dumfries, although the name wouldn't suggest that. Um, <laughs> but but I'm a I'm a Dunhamer through and through. And uh, so really there was there was only one team for me. I suppose I could have been distracted by bigger sizes I mean my dad was a my dad was a Celtic fan when he was growing up so but there was never really any thought that you would support anyone other than queen of the South so from ever I can remember so this would be I suppose the late 1970s I don't as I say in the piece I don't have a one of these photographic memories like I've got friends who can tell you you know my first game was in 23rd of January 1979 and the two team lineups and kind of what what the what the man sitting next to them in the stand was wearing. Ah, uh, 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 it's always been a bit more, a bit more vague for me. I don't know if that's. I think it's always been that way. I don't think it's the advancing years that have that have done it to me. And so it, it was really to try to sum up, which is quite difficult because I mean we're talking now 40 years plus that I've been that have been going to Palmerston. But it was to try to sum up. What the what the ground what the ground means to me, hopefully what it means to other fans as well, and that that sits alongside a um, lovely piece from yourself about Capolo and and a piece about Somerset Park as well.
0: How much has the has the lovely place changed in your time of supporting Queen of the South? N-
4: not really. Well, I mean, I guess probably you know if I was to look back at pictures, I would see. Yes, it's changed a lot, but it's still it's still very recognisably Palmerston. I mean, it's not like you know some grounds go through great revamps and um, it's it's um, you know they're they're barely recognisable from what they were before. Queen of the South, the the main changes I guess have been the the new stand that that was built that used to be the coup Shade and that was. You know, I, I didn't watch. I don't remember watching many games from the coup Shade, but I do. I do remember it as being this sort of gnarling, menacing kind of place of of darkness and foreboding. Especially, especially when the likes of um, Air United or Kilmarnock came to town, it was it was usually there was a a, a slight threat of uh, a threat of, of violence coming coming out of there. Definitely. So I mean, that was an old sort of corrugated iron affair opposite the main stand and really pretty ramshackle. And, you know, in in a way it was sad to see it go, but probably it avoided kind of major major disasters really. And it it got, it was at that time where a lot of grounds across Scotland were getting investment and Queen's got some as well. So there's now a nice spanky new stand there, which, which does slightly make the old rickety, Main stand look a bit, uh, look a bit. It's a uh, shabby chic, I think, is what we've got at Hampsten <laughs> and that, and the and the two ends really. I mean, you know, that's I think the uh, I think the Portland Drive end they say is like the the biggest covered standing terrace in mm-hmm. left in Scotland. Something something like that. It does have a it does have a claim to mm-hmm. claim to fame, but you know the the floodlights are still the same, and the the Terego Street end. Unfortunately, is um, a bit a bit left to rack and ruin, I suppose. But we've actually it's kind of had a second life when uh, when we've had sort of the bigger sides down in the in the championship alongside us, um, your know, your Rangers, Hearts, Dundee United, or whatever. It's kind of become an overspill area for for visiting support as well. So you do get. And I always think that there's a there's a magic. Number, I don't know exactly what it is, but I think there's a magic number that transforms Palmerston. It, it might be sort of round about the 1800 to 2000 mark, and it goes from being a sort of fairly subdued, kind of uh, typical Scottish ground, really grumbling old man. By and large, much, much myself probably included, um, to, to, to having a, to having an atmosphere, a real, a real pulse and a, and a beat about it. So, you know, it, it has changed. I, I alluded to earlier the pitch as well, that that was, you know, was um, lovely grass pitch. Always, when I was a boy growing up, it just always seemed like the perfect playing surface. You used to get. Um, you know, other pitches around the around the country that looked really terrible. In in my memory, Palmerston was always a, a beautiful playing surface. Probably, probably players will tell you tell you different, and that's probably a slightly romanticised memory of it. I'm sure it was a I'm sure it was a muddy glue pot on occasions. But again, you know, this is one of these things where I, c- I can see the the reasons behind it. I think we'd all love we'd all love football on grass. That would be our an absolute kind of perfect grass pitch, but the the reality was that that was getting harder and harder to do, and there was there was money there to um, to to upgrade, well, or up, replace the pitch uh, with a, whatever it is now. I don't know 3G, 5G, 25G. I don't <laughs> know. I don't know what number G we're on we're on <laughs> now. But uh, I mean, the, the the nice thing from that point of view is that um, it's become a sort of community. Pitch where it wasn't necessarily before, and so I've seen my son play um, fun floors and various other games on on that pitch and score some score some lovely goals. So you know that's that's been that's been a nice part of the of the change of the change of pitch as well. You know, so it's, it, as I say, it's it's changed, but it's still you know it's still there's a lovely illustration in the in the latest nutmeg. Um, of the ground and you know it's still it's still recognisably palmerston park and that um that that main stand is is, wasn't there i don't think that's the original main stand i think that was built later on but it's still it's it's of a certain vintage definitely and uh, you know that that comes with with good and bad but it's it's uh, it's loaded with character i think is what we would say
0: so you mentioned players there you invoke in the piece latterly the great Stephen Dobby, Andy Thompson, Ted McMinn, but then one Jimmy Robertson, who I had not come across before. Can you tell me about him
4: oh it was he was um, you know in, I think the seventies were famous for football mavericks, and they, definitely he was he was ours. he had sort of long curly hair and a. Uh, magical left foot and, and he was the kind of player that you know, I think he he drove home fans and away fans to distraction really because he, he could on his, on his day, he was unplayable and, and really skip past defenders and create more than score I think but he still got his fair share of, of goals as well, just a, a wonderful dribbler and there was always a a wee buzz of excitement when he when he got the ball. I, mean, I think that's they're the kind of players that we, we we turn up to see. You know, you mentioned Thompson, then Ted McMinn was another one at, at Palmerston. But Jimmy Robertson was the first player really that I fell in love with. I think at Palmerston, just that was my era for for Queen of the South fans. listening will remember Alan Ball, Ian McChesney. Nobby Clark, these kind of these kind of players being in the in the team, and um, as I say, Jimmy Robertson was kind of the he, he was like almost the the flamboyant foreigner in the team. There was no there was no stranieri like we have in Italy, but uh, but he had that that flash of kind of flair and and uh, kind of flamboyant play that just um, stood out. I think in Scotland that somehow it, it seems to stand out even more. You know, in a drich a the Saturday afternoon or, or maybe a midweek night and there's you know, as you say, the, the pitch is heavy, the, the ball's getting lumped long or whatever, to see to see that kind of first touch and control and cheeky bit of skill or whatever, then, you know, it was it was great. As I say, but he did he definitely had a, a love hate relationship with the home support. I loved him, but but there were <laughs> There were there were supporters who, you know, loved the more loved the more robust uh, style of Scottish way and weren't up for the the skillful the skillful moves or whatever. So, you know, but the uh, GR as he was uh, nicknamed uh, along with the people that remember Dallas I'll remember there was GR in that one. Well, we had our own we had our own we had our own GR at uh, at Palmerston Park and that was that was Jimmy Robertson.
0: Um, you mentioned briefly there, but uh, extending the, in the piece about the importance of family and continuity in a football ground, it's it's a very important thing, isn't it?
4: it it's, it's it's one of the most precious things about footballs, and it's one of the hardest things now about um, about lockdown and not not getting to a live game. And then even you know, I, I, I don't know how you feel, but to me, the, the it's a pretty soulless experience watching a game. Behind closed yeah. doors, you know, it just it shows how important the supporters are. But it's definitely for me. It's it's partly about community as well, because I think there aren't many places now where we experience genuine community. You know, maybe maybe gala days and the like down here, riding to the marches that we have or common ridings, whatever. You know, those are those are occasions where we gather, but. There aren't that many so so to get together as a town however small the numbers might be and uh, you know for a, an hour and 45 minutes or so we're all we're all willing the same thing is is lovely and and I started taking my son um i think it'd be seven or eight years ago now and um Queen of the South do a great thing called a junior blue season ticket which is it's a pound a game for the whole season so under 16s i think it is um, get in. So he he was, uh, you know, I did for the first six or seven years of his life. I thought maybe he's not going to like football, uh, and and this, you know, it, it really it presented me with some sort of philosophical problems about how I was going to live if if uh, because my father's football daft and I'm football daft and what am I going to do if if my son's not? But luckily, um, he he came round to he came round to football and got the got the junior blue season ticket, and that just happened to be the season where um, Queen's had been relegated to, I don't know if it was called League One then, it was the third tier anyway, and um, just put together a team under Alan Johnson that thrashed pretty much everybody all season long, went on an ad to keep telling my son, you know, this is not what it's normally <laughs> like being a Queen of the South fan. We would go behind and win 6-2. We went up to, uh, I, I don't know if you're allowed to mention, Air United defeats. Um, but I'll mention it anyway. We <laughs> went up to Somerset Park and and, and beat uh, and beat the M4-2 with a great, uh, just an amazing season. Won the Challenge Cup as well, went to the final of that. And, you know, that was just those days with um, my dad, my father-in-law, my uncles, my brother-in-law, nieces. Uh, just a big sort of extended family, good friends as well. All there. gathered in in Palmerston to see this this kind of spectacle then that that's continued really you know i still have a season ticket i hope to renew it when when the opportunity arises uh and and my son still got a couple more years as an under 16 to to get in on the on the junior blue ticket but that that's even when it's even when it's bad i think you know um there's still something um, you know, I come out of the, into the car park at, at, at Palmerston with my old father-in-law sometimes, and we we trudge across in the rain and wonder, you know, why the hell are we doing this? And then at least you know there's a sort of a, there's a bottle of red waiting at the end of the at the end of the rainbow when we get when we get home. We might we might survive and go back for for another week, and, and it's just <laughs> as say, it's a it's a it's a great place to go. And now we've got my son's got friends that that. Go along to the game, so just this big kind of mass of of people, and it varies week in week out how many turn up. But it's just that sort of sense of community, really, sense of belonging. I suppose that that we don't get, as I say, I don't think we get it all that much anymore. So that kind of usually suffering, as I say, especially um, the, the last season before it was curtailed was not a was not a great one. Um, but but you know, th- occasionally we just. We strike gold and it's it's so fantastic to, to jump up in the air and celebrate with your as I say, with your with your dad, your son, your your father in law, whoever else might be there. It's uh, it's it's one of the best feelings in the world I think. Do you want to read an exit? This old house is rarely comfortable, be it standing on a stone step, fearing splinters off a wooden seat or trying to balance on a moulded plastic one, but still feels like home. It's something of the eccentric with its towering floodlights, dive-bombing seagulls, drum-beating teenage ultras, but we wouldn't have it any other way, if only there were more connoisseurs out there who felt the same on a more regular basis. But it's much more than the mere surroundings anyway, at least for me it is. This is where I've grown up in a football spectating sense and watched the rise and more often fall of a team I sometimes translate to the more romantic Italian. Regina del Sud. It's also where I've spent a huge slice of quality time with my father, father father-in-law, uncles, brother-in-law, niece, son, many other friends and relatives too numerous to mention. Mostly, we roll our eyes in despair at what's unfolding before us, and then later, trudge out of the ground slowly, our progress delayed by a rolling roadblock of old men with walking sticks. At those times, you wonder why you do it. the weather usually conspires to make the potholed car park and converted Tesco supermarket arena nearby seem a most grim prospect. Only the bottle of red waiting at home offers solace. However, once in a while, magic happens within the confines of these four stands. For over a century now, this place has witnessed the very occasional glory days of Dumfries' finest. A cup upset, a league flag, just a moment of sublime skill can transport us from this humble stadium to a back-slapping, fist-pumping dance of delight with some of those we hold dearest. The fact that they happen so rarely only makes them more special, like finding a nugget of gold in the waters at Wanluck Head. Nowadays, I work within a stone's throw of this grand old ground and watch it sit in silence for most of the week. It looks unassuming and inauspicious, but I, and a few others, know how the spot can be transformed. At game time on a good day, the heart beats faster, the spirits soar, and the body positively glows with a warmth that's impossible to recreate anywhere else. I call it, jokingly, the theatre of dreams, but for me anyway, it's a whole lot more than that, better than the Maltese Falcon, this is the stuff that dreams are made of.
0: James, which ground would you have written about, whether in Scotland or elsewhere?
2: Yeah, am I allowed to? Oh yes. The Scottish ground would have been Tain Castle. Um, you know, I, I just love Tynecastle. It's one of those places, and 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 it's more for the just this no, the noise that hits you when you go in, and when, when it when it's jumping, it's just a tremendous atmosphere. I just love being there, and you know, it, it, in many ways, you know, we talked about the vote and, and what what. It means for um, or what the whole you know landscape is going to look like at the end of that, but it's just a tremendous shame that hearts are going to be lost from from the, the top flight next season. Of course, it's it's great news for you, Ali, you know, and and and, and uh, for championship clubs, but um, pr- providing they don't win their um, their legal uh, appeal. And I, 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 but just Tynecastle is one of those places that I love getting the train through. It's a it's a Hard place to get to, um, coming from where I'm from, you know, from ha- in Hamilton, it, it can be tricky to get to by train. But I just love the walk up um, through Gorgie, and you know, and just I've not been since a new main stand went up, so I, I can't speak for that and what what that might have done to the atmosphere. But certainly, that was something I just used to love going to a game at Tyne Castle The other ground I picked would have. Uh, been the the Oval in Belfast, which is where Glenthorne mm-hmm. play their home matches. Um, you know, great kind of iconic venue in East Belfast, sitting right um, in the heart of the Docklands. And when you sit inside the main stand at the Oval, you look up to, I'm trying to remember now, is it your left or your right? It's been so long since we've been in it, but you, you look to the horizon and you see the twin cranes of Samson and Delaula. Samson not and Goliath. Samson and Goliath, not <laughs> Delilah. Uh, and so you you see these, and so you're unmistakably in the heart of East Belfast, um, and and it also explains why um, the, the ground was bombed during the Second World War because of its proximity to the shipyards. Um, it's seen some you know storied names. George Best played there. Eusebio played there in a European Cup quarter final in 1967. I first saw Glenn Hoddle there, and and when Tottenham came as FA Cup winners, in, I think pre-season nineteen eighty one, maybe eighty two, was also best. There was a, there was a film stroke documentary made about best a few years ago, um, and they used it as the venue for some of the English grounds. I think Burnden Park was used. It was used as Burnden Park at one point um, in that uh, retelling of the best story, um, and the other the other. Who shout for it is that my I, I believe you know I don't know whether this story is apocryphal, but my father certainly told me it anyway that in a match against Belfast Celtic, he and some of his friends as teenagers led a, a led a pitch invasion which um ended with the match being um abandoned and um then many years later, my brother scored a goal there that led to a pitch invasion, so there's was a nice kind of <laughs> there to that um you know, that's yeah that would be my my two choices if if you allow me to
0: oh definitely tank castle's a brilliant choice i think there are a few few noisier grounds on a on a full day. In the good times, anyway, than Tyne Castle, it's it, you know you can hear it across the city, which is always something quite special. The Oval is so high on my list of must visits. Every time I see photography of it, I just think, why have I not been yet? It's quite pre- it's preposterous that I haven't because it just look. I just know I will love it immediately, and it brings to mind actually Joris van der De Veer, who we have an interview with in the ground section of Nutmeg, who's been to so many grounds across the world now, and and I know that's that's one of his favourites as well. Ali, we went big on Somerset Capilow, Palmerston. Are there any other Scottish grounds that have that authenticity and
1: charm? Places like like you know going to Broth, you know Gayfield. A ground I always love and and strangely um Alloa's ground even though I know it's been developed slightly um and it has the 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 all weather pitch. I still love going there. Uh, I I like the, you know you've got the owls in the background and and the kind of um you know Odd little stand for the away crowd, and I mean they've they've actually kept you know they've developed it. They've been able to spend some money on it. I think it would, it's something to do with the uh, development of the railway line. I think, but it's it still retained its charm. Whereas Stenhouse Muir's ground, which I used to love going to, has completely lost it because you know as a, as an away fan you just have to you are stuck behind the goals. So there is many fantastic grounds out there, and, and you know as as James said, I mean Tynemouth. I've always preferred Tynecastle to Easter Road as a, as a neutral.
0: A shout as well for Gayfield, which I just absolutely yeah. love, and for the corner stand, the main stand of Starks Park, which feels of so unique when you sat up on the, the benches there. There just seem to be so many more authentic grounds left in Scotland, James, do you think that's because, ironically, of the lack of money in the game and the lack of ability to to really afford to to have transform and move to so many different grounds? Is is one of Scottish football's perceived weaknesses, i.e., the lack of money? Actually, one of its strengths.
2: Yeah, I suppose when you go to these kind of out of the box stadium solutions, I'm using solutions because everything seems to be a solution these days. But you know that that's what it feels. It just feels. Like they're like it's something that you've pulled out of a Lego box, or it's been you know you, you know flat packed and and pressed a button and it's appeared. And I, I've been to Stoke City's Britannia Stadium, which sits right in the middle of a an industrial estate or like a kind of sh- retail park, and it's the most bizarre experience. I suppose in a way it's a bit like Livingston's ground, but so many of the grounds aren't like that and it is yeah there is an undeniable charm although sometimes on a on a cold day like as Hugh McDonald ex- uh, describes at Somerset Park or I think he talks about um a polar bear wearing a balaclava and or opting or to wear a balaclava or sit in for a sealed supper um you, you know that's that's pretty much the experience it's not for the faint-hearted um, and, I, and I mentioned Livingston there. And, you know, especially if you're covering a game at Livingston, for whatever peculiar reason, wherever, when the sun set and where you were in the press box was and sitting in the ground, you would look down after about 45 minutes at these atrophied fingers and think, how am I getting, you know, six, 800 words out of these? Because they just, they wouldn't work, you know? And, and that's that's one of those um, recurring memories of covering games in, in Scotland that it, it's forever freezing and when you do get a warm day you know you've got this uh, you know I have four or five layers on and you suddenly find yourself having to peel one off one by one you know a bit like a you're sitting there a bit like a cricket umpire you know and then suddenly you're you're, you're in your uh, your t-shirt by the end of it all so there's yeah there's just something you've got Different vantage points at, at football um, grounds in Scotland. You can, if you want to stand in a grass bank for the afternoon, you can do that. If you want to sit, mm-hmm. you can do that. Um, if you want to look at the kids stealing the balls for the, the, from the errant clearances that drop and on the wall, <laughs> you know, next to the pitch, you can do that. So there's just, it just is that kind of goes back to what football feels like. It no longer is any longer. Do you think, James, somehow
0: perhaps uh, that the architecture of Scottish grounds or some Scottish grounds, certainly in the lower leagues and in junior football with terraces and spaces and huge capacities compared to how many people actually go, might mean that they get to have fans back in the ground sooner than the bigger clubs, if there's a bit of creative thinking going on and and it's safe, goes without saying, really.
2: Yeah, I suppose uh, it's... Pretty obvious that that would be a, a, a an option available to you know um, authorities to get football you know fans back into football grounds. Um, I suppose it would have to be limited in the number who would walk through the as well, and, and so the, the ticket sales would obviously be capped. But yeah, it, it certainly makes sense. Um, again, i will go back to you know certain grounds aren't going to have that many there anyway, so you know mm-hmm. there would be. You know, some people would argue that social distancing goes on at Scottish football yeah. at the best times, let alone in the midst of a pandemic. But, um, yeah, so yes, you would think that that would certainly be. It's, a, it's a, the, the more populous grounds, like, you know, Ibrox, Celtic Park, um, you know, and grounds where you're going to have people in close proximity, where it's obviously going to be more of an issue.
5: Come
6: on, come on. Bigger, bigger. We've done that. Farting! Can we not knock it?
0: Tactics and tactical analysis have come a long way in recent years. If you're a thinking football fan who wants more than the standard match report, check out TotalFootballAnalysis.com for match analysis, data, statistics, scouting reports and more that helps to explain what really happens on the pitch. This finely tuned website includes pieces on players and teams from across the world and access to the Total Football Analysis magazine. Take it away, Graham.
6: John! 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 Barnsley! Took in more! In your took in more! Into took go. inside more! In to go out!
0: James, tell us about your piece in Nutmeg Issue 16.
2: The piece came up by. From conversations I had with uh, heads of academy at various clubs in the midst of the pandemic, I, I noticed that a lot of um, acad- youth academies were putting videos out of their young players um, performing focused practice. So, You know, you where were kids aren't just lashing a ball into a goal or doing keepy uppies or um, you know, you know, dribbling round a cone. It had to, it has to be done with um, some kind of uh, precision and and speed and mm. and there needs to be a a purpose to it uh, because and and I noticed this because my son was doing a lot of the the aforementioned stuff that doesn't really um, improve you per se so I'd kind of been encouraging him to do more of that and showing him some of these videos and then um, a family member who was formerly a scout at a coach at Celtic suggested that I you know might be interested in doing something in like this so. I phoned each of the clubs um, for some comment on that, and it formed the basis of a of a column for uh, two two written pieces for the Herald, and then a column also. But I realised that it, it, it had, had you know more to it than just um, that that the, um, the the stuff about the practice, because what became clear was that a lot of the clubs were rolling out a strategy called the Pride Labs. Um, and these were aimed at greater collaboration between the clubs. Um, the idea that the clubs could be could work together in tandem or uh, and and that they would kind of rid themselves of the baggage of old rivalries that had maybe um held Scotland back, um, certainly at the international stage now. That was a big undertaking, as you can imagine. If you're a, the coach of a, a club and you're 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 charged with bringing through young players and and feeding your um you, you, the academy structure, but also then with a view to putting these players uh, into the under twenties and then into the first team, then that 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 was you you're basically having to unveil your trade secrets. But but what the SFA managed to do successfully was convince. A lot of these coaches that this was for the greater good. And it was really refreshing, especially when you look at where we're at, or where we would have been at on the the fringes, or well, probably in the middle of a European Championships now. That, that there was some kind of, because you kind of look at um, Scottish football, the Scotland national team, and you always just assume there is no plan. That um, it's just it's crap and it's forever. Uh, condemned to be crap, and that, and we're never. There's never going to be any progress. And so this to 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 hear um, these coaches talking about this structured uh, program that was geared towards improving not just the domestic product but then the international product as a whole seemed like a really good thing to 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 delve into. Um, and the thing, the key things that really stood out for me was how quickly the clubs managed to set aside those differences and understand that this was clearly going to be the way that Scottish football would have to move forward, was for there to be some degree of Turkeys voting for Christmas and saying, you know, it seemed to run at odds to what we were witnessing with the vote as well, that here was the capacity for clubs to get along. And I think clubs do get along much more behind the scenes than we're led to believe you know there is a level of integration there that you don't always see and you're not always aware of however it it doesn't always um it doesn't transcend every uh, area of the sport and and what what became clear was that there was a greater respect between coaches as a result of these pride lab meetings which the the the, the heads of academy would meet every quarter sometimes every month, and they would sit down, they would present to each other about how they would do, um, how they would um, operate, you know, what what kind of coaching drills they would use, what kind of, um, how how could you get maybe a sports psychologist in? Well, you know, you have the money to get a sports psychologist in, but why have you not thought about perhaps going to University of the West of Scotland and seeing if there's a, a graduate there who would be interested in coming in to talk to you and so there was this as I say collaborative approach a joined up approach to helping each other and looking at ways to make each other better now I spoke to um, a chap who was at the Jacksonville Jaguars for many years um, and Steve Livingston and he he was here at the outset of the Scottish Claymores and was the general manager there and and he talked an awful lot during an interview that I did with him recently, about this kind of joined-up thinking, how all of the NFL franchises would sit around a table two or three times a year, and they would work on best practice and saying how do we improve this product, how do we get more fans through the door, why are we not getting fans into this area of the stadium, and and that was and they, and they they conducted this study that really from from driveway to stadium they 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 kind of looked at every dimension of a fan's experience now i'm digressing slightly but it's to kind of demonstrate how that at the end of this process they came up with this package of best practice procedures Um, and that's essentially what the sfa is trying to do with the pride labs
0: fantastic stuff ali a a really enjoyable piece you know completely new to me which is always a, a an enjoyable thing i was so interested in the mention of it i'm reading from it here it is an american model one which promotes sporting socialism and the power of the collective number one because i've always loved that slight contradiction in American life of the usual rejection of socialist ideas and yet their sport is inherently socialist. But for you, Ali, as someone that very much, although you love Air United, number one, but very much cares for and loves the Scottish game, this must be quite an optimistic piece for you to read because things are going on, good things.
1: Absolutely, and it's, yeah, it was one of the reasons when when um, James mentioned it, I was absolutely drawn to it, to, to hear about... Positive things in our game to to read about clubs genuinely collaborating. Um, as James says, you know it, it does probably go on a lot more than we than we
2: imagine. But this whole idea of working for the greater good when these when the Pride Labs kicked off, there were I think a lot of the coaches felt under pressure. They were having to fulfil their remits as part of um, Project Breathe. That meant that previously they may, may well have been you know the under 14s coach and then suddenly they were elevated to these positions where they were maybe in charge of the academy and that was you know a huge undertaking and suddenly they found themselves out in a limb a little bit and one guy in particular from one job which I'm not going to mention just found it all, you know, very overwhelming mm. and um, in, the, in the piece you know I document this where he broke down, you know, I mean, he broke down in the middle of delivering his talk uh, um, to the other coaches. And the the power of the collective became apparent very, uh, very quickly when they all four or five older coaches um, congregated around this coach and said, listen, just don't worry about it. We've all been here. We've experienced the same things. Let's chat about it. Let's get a coffee. Let's go and meet. And if there's anything you want to talk about with us or raise with us, just, just phone us or just come and speak to us because we're all in this together. And I thought that was a really powerful, emotive imagery, you know, our image to kind uh, of to, to, to demonstrate um, what this is about.
0: In case you'd forgotten, you're listening to The Nutmeg Podcast, a version of the Scottish football magazine for your ears please have a think about joining our supporters' club on patreon.com slash nutmegfc. Your readies will help keep this podcast going in return for various goodies, including copies of the magazine, and help me self-medicate with macaroni pies. Now, back to the tittle-tattle. Ali, tell us about some of the other pieces in Nutmeg Issue 16.
1: Yeah, just to expand on the the stadium's theme, um, we had a piece which was another... Uh, the the idea of the story also kind of uh, pushed us into doing this kind of larger stadium uh, theme in issue 16 was, was the the tale of Bill Barr. Uh, Bill Barr died in November and he'd been the principal shareholder and uh, chairman of air for um, a number of years in the nineties through through to to, to 2003. Uh, And obviously the, the the, the irony of, of building stadiums all over Britain while Somerset remained as it was, which of course, uh, in the end was a good thing. Um but uh yeah he you know built grounds Southampton's yes, ground, Bournemouth, Celtic Hibs, St Mirand and D. E. Wraith, I think, and 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 even Kilmarnock. Um and you know, all the time we were playing in this dilapidated stadium. But he also spent a lot of, of his personal wealth on, on the team and lots of other excellent stuff, of course, um in issue sixteen, uh, one piece which I must admit, I picked up on a blog, which we sometimes do. You know, sometimes we see people writing pieces and think, you know, this could work in Nutmeg. And it was a a piece by a guy called Kenny Jameson, um, uh, entitled For the Good of the Game. Uh, Kenny had been involved in the SFA a number of years ago as a commercial director, so he'd he'd sort of been on the other side, as it were, was well aware of what was happening within the SFA and the SPFL at the time, and just wrote, wrote this really thoughtful overview on on how he thinks our game could be fixed, Um, which from almost from a kind of outsider's point of view, um, he is a fan, he's a football fan, he's a Falkirk fan, Um, but because he had some involvement in the game, you know, it came with some authority. And I I just thought it was a a wonderful piece that touched on things like, you know, better financial distribution, you know, bringing up the the, the old story tale of uh, you know should we be sharing gate receipts again? Which personally I I agree with. Um, and just to quote him, he said, uh, Scotch football is in urgent need of uh, intervention, and now is the perfect time for a redesign." And it's something I I personally agree with that the the game right now we should have just taken a big deep breath and and come up with something that would give. The game a year or so to to readjust. Uh, I've seen jokes of forty-two team leagues, and I kind of I kind of thought the same. Like a twenty-team league where everyone just plays each other twice, and mm. Rangers and Celtics money gets distributed further throughout the game for a year might have been more sensible than trying to find uh, this quick fix, um, which nobody will be happy with. Um, anyway, that, that oh, uh, excellent piece. Got a number of pieces on the junior game. If we can still call it the junior game, because it's even even while we were trying to um, finish one of the pieces, it was constantly changing uh, because of the um, discussions within the the, the game and the Western Scotland League. Uh, but a couple of brilliant pieces: one from Alan Robertson, another one from uh, a, a regular writer, Scott Fleming, uh, which is which is great. Um, and the final piece I would I would pick up would be on by Craig Cairns. Who, it's the anniversary of. of meadowbank moving to livingston uh or did they <laughs> some people on, on the meadowbank side say this club you know ended and some people say no they moved to livingston and, and became a new club and it's uh, it's the two um opposing uh, views on 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 that subject great stuff
0: and james which articles have caught your eye so far
2: well, one that we've already mentioned, which was Hugh McDonald's uh, piece on Somerset Park, because uh, you, you know I I worked with Hugh for a long time, and this was it was wonderful to see the reappearance of the Herald, Hugh McDonald's Herald Saturday column, uh, rearing its head again, not made, because it was very very reminiscent of a lot of those pieces where Hugh has this wonderful Hugh, Hugh's got wonderful capacity to write serious uh pieces and you know lyrically brilliant and you just devour every single word but he's also got this great ability to make you laugh out loud in print which as we all know is one of the hardest things to do um he's also got a tremendous ability to make you laugh out loud in person but to be able to do uh, take, is you know take some doing i would argue and you know i just uh, i just love that that piece um simply but you know as i say the the you know I always had the privilege of getting a chance to to sub um, Hugh's column on a on a Saturday. Um, I remember one senior editor telling us that um, Hugh's column, after a complaint or a series of complaints about a picture that was used, um, a missive or a three line whip came down from one of the senior editors that a serious picture had always to be used on Hugh's column, and to you know general gaffes from boats desk uh, you know, as we all turned and said, Yeah, try putting a serious picture on the Hughes Column because it, you know, it was was written in that with a fair degree of levity, but you know, nevertheless always compelling and, and very funny. Um I love Donald Walker's piece on his childhood recollections of Wraith and I suppose what I called autograph Lean. Um, this kinda had a secret seven feel to it almost were of children scoring you know Streets for, you know, well, not quite Secret Seven, but it did remind me of childhood where, you know, the idea of going up and knocking a stranger's door was just not um, frowned upon. You know, it was quite a common thing. You're in the Scouts, for example, you know, you would quite happily go and knock every door in the street to get 10 pence or 50p for washing someone's car. And, and you know, it just spoke of a much more innocent time. So I love that. I loved the fact that there were so many footballers all in such close proximity to, to each other. Um, it also reminded me a bit of my wife's upbringing because she lived in what was called Spam Valley rather than Spam Hill, which uh, Donald talks about. Um, and I also loved Kevin McCallion's piece on play-by-meal. I had a brief dabble with play-by-meal uh, as a as a As a teenager, and you know, I could everything in Kevin's piece chimed right down to the the, the, his intro, which uh, um talks about you know a a squeaky voiced teen phoning his uh, and his mother, phoning his house, and his mother picking up, and this high pitched um voice at the other end asks to speak to the manager of Athletic Bilbao. Um, (laughs) you know, that 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 speaks to another time where. Um, uh, he talked. He talked about how, how managers would you know phone young younger ch- young boys and just stuff that would just not happen nowadays. And it just um the idea that also that you know I I could I, I could fully sympathise with that idea of waiting for events to happen in slow motion almost before computer games and before FIFA and Championship Manager or Football Manager that you had you know you had to wait. And it felt like the same length of time. You might have to wait if you were a football manager of a of a football club that you know. You you would have to you'd have this period of time that would elapse before you could get to see or get to speak to the boys again. You know.
0: Another eclectic edition of Nutmeg. Then let's hear now from a couple of the writers on their pieces. First up, Ginny Clark on Queens Park's Peter Buchanan, and then Greg Gordon on Jockey Scott.
7: It's an interview with Peter Buchanan who was a a notable Queen's Park centre forward throughout most of the 60s, prolific scorer. In fact, he'd around, uh, I think it's 155 for the club. And he also reached a joint record 11 for Scotland's National Amateurs. Uh, However, he... In addition, scored a couple of goals for the Great Britain and Northern Ireland Olympic squad when it used to compete in the Games uh, with an amateur side. Um, Peter had been called up for the team that were trying to qualify for the Tokyo Olympics of 1964. But despite his goals, in fact, he scored a winner against Greece. Uh, They beat them at Stamford Bridge but lost over in Athens and they didn't qualify. Um, It's an interesting story, Uh, Peter's fairly philosophical about it despite his starring role in that um, although Greece went through to the next stage they were eventually disqualified um, supposedly for having used professional players uh, and their round uh, was deemed a walkover for for Czechoslovakia who, who went on right to the the final and were beaten by uh, Hungary in the final but uh, peter knows is, is is quite as i say philosophical about all that but given the 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 fact it was the tokyo olympics uh, i was thinking about peter back in january which seems like a really far away time and place now and uh, yeah i mean just like another world um when people believed there would still be a Euros and a Tokyo Olympics um, before the, the horror and the, the impact of the pandemic emerged. Uh, but I'd interviewed Peter a number of years before for a small piece in Scotland and Sunday. Um, it may have been uh, one of those debates about Olympics and home nations and separate FAs and maintaining their independence but I knew there'd been a British Olympic team in the past and had wondered about the Scots who'd been involved and Peter's name obviously stood out so yeah at the start of the year I would began thinking about him again thinking about the parallels in his story and it was good to have another chat with him I mean he's in his early 80s now but he's still so eager to talk about the game he loves and the club that he still passionately supports I actually gave Peter a buzz last week to tell him that uh, the magazine was coming out and I'd get a copy to him with his his interview in it, and I just asked how he was doing and 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 he you know he more or less said he just you know he was just desperate to get back and see Queen's Park that you know it had he said it's 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 my life you know he I mean he was going to every game home and away. Uh, before before the shutdown and uh, yeah there must be a lot of not just former players obviously but fans especially older fans for whom uh, football represented a huge part of their social life
0: is the world of great britain and northern ireland amateurs and of scotland amateurs a largely forgotten one now
7: yeah i think i think it is um I mean for me do you know talking to Peter I mean that 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 unique aspect of having been in an olympic squad was certainly the the starting point he is such an interesting guy anyway but it is that compelling aspect of someone who devotes their playing career to an amateur side mm-hmm. while holding down a day job so genuinely playing for the love of the game and the club um it's that era of the national amateur sides and the olympic team it's really just another chapter in football history now. It's, it's not one that I confess I know that much about. But a lot of people, I think, now might have imagined amateur football to have been something somehow less or inferior to the professional game. When, in fact, amateur players were as committed and as professional in their approach, in fact, some would say more so because of the lengths they would go to uh, just to keep playing the game that yeah. we love. Um, Queen's Park's status as an amateur club in modern times was really unusual until, of course, uh, last year, the club voted to change that status after 153 years of being Hmm. amateur. I imagine some people might not even realise that that was still the case.
0: Did you think that move away from amateurism was inevitable for Queen's Park by the end?
7: I think it really had to be. and I asked Peter when I was chatting to him, I, I wondered whether he still felt quite sort of sentimental or romantic about that aspect of it, because he was so um, passionate about the idea of amateur football. But even he agreed that, you know, it was inevitable. They're, they're participating in a professional football league. Um, and he said, you know, even as a fan now, watching every team at the end of each season, being picked through by the other clubs who could offer a paid contract and other terms meant that it was really just becoming impossible for Queen's Park to compete in today's uh, football world without going professional.
0: Greg, tell us about your piece in Nutmeg, Issue 16.
5: Well... As usual with me, this has ended up being a kind of labour of love. Um, I have le- have led a kind of parallel life to Jockey Scott, I suppose, for the last almost 20 years. As a scout, I've watched his teams. I've worked with people who've been his former players. I've coached with people who bear his imprint as a coach. And In that period, I've, uh, I suppose you would say, learned all about Jockey by osmosis. I, and then last year, I had the opportunity, just by sheer chance, I ended up sitting next to him at Bayview. He'd kind of come out of semi-retirement to cover a game for Dick Campbell at our broth. And the two of us ended up talking, as you do, at half-time. And a couple of comments through the game. Got on like a house on fire. Uh, and our mutual friend and, and my former boss, um, Barry Smith, Kind of, we were talking about it when we were in the United States, and I just thought, you know, I love interviewing these guys, and I have a kind of vague plan in my mind that I'm going to do a book on Scotland's football men, that that generation of older coaches who are probably starting to be forgotten, and yet were so influential in the in their time and remain so because of the people that they've they've kind of brought through. And I, um, <laughs> so so Barry said, well, why don't you interview Jockey? I'll set it all up for you. Jim Layton, my, our other mutual friend, he said, yeah, that's an absolutely brilliant idea. So everybody's been really, really helpful. It was all set up and uh, I think Jockey was happy to have his uh, his DIY, He's laying slabs and painting fences. I think he was happy to have that interrupted to be talking about football. So that, that, was, <laughs> that was my COVID good deed for that particular day.
0: It's fair to say that he's been underrated perhaps by media and supporters, but not within the game.
5: Well, well, I think that was the thing as well, is, is that you don't, You always... You, to, I think to fans, and I think to press, he became a caricature because he's quite an imposing person. He obviously has the, the luxurious cowboy moustache, which he's had since, I think, 1976. <laughs> um, and therefore, I think it was easy to caricature him as being a, a man from another time, a kind of austere character. But actually... The things that he did on the training ground, the things that he did with his teams, the things that he lives and dies by as a human being, I think are far more nuanced, far more complex and far more interesting. And and, and so in that sense, that's what, that's what I wanted to capture here. I really love the idea that you can do portraits of people in a way that maybe like a portrait painter would do that reveals a side of the character that wouldn't be immediately apparent to somebody who thought they knew them well by media reputation.
0: Beautifully put. Uh, Tell us then about his playing career and style.
5: Well, the really, really interesting thing for me is is if if you saw him as a manager and you asked someone who'd never seen him play what sort of player you'd have thought he was, then I think people would say, oh, I bet he was a a bustling number nine, a Joe Jordan, a kind of 1970s all-action centre-forward. But in fact, Craig Brown in the piece and I and I and I backed this up by watching lots and lots of old clips confirmed that really he was the Billy Gilmore of his day. He was a player that was mm. as he was as a coach, probably about twenty years ahead of his time. Uh a player that could play off the front, a player that could get you up the field, a player that could beat men, a player that would shoot from twenty five yards, it was full of invention. A kind of mini, a kind of mini messy, I suppose, of his day, that sort of that sort of player. And and Craig actually played a really, really nice compliment to to, to Jockey when he said, you know, you would compare him to, you would compare him to Billy Gilmore for a younger audience, but in fact, the reality is, is that if uh, Billy Gilmore goes on to be even half the player that Jockey Scott was in his prime, then he'll have, he'll have had an absolutely wonderful career because he was really a super player at a time when, you know, world class Scottish players were technically, you know, literally ten a penny. We had many of them. We, we could have fielded a team of, of players who. Or certainly a squad who would all have been good enough to feature in the kind of current Champions League sort of level of the game. So, mm-hmm. Jockey only won two caps for Scotland, but at any other era, he'd probably have won 50 to 100, I'd have thought.
0: What about him as a coach then? What was his style, technique, philosophy? What set him apart?
5: Well, I think the thing about him, which was. <laughs> He belongs to a particular school of coaching. I don't know what you would call it. It doesn't have a name. You could probably call it the Broughty Ferry School of Scottish Coaching because they all <laughs> seem to live within the, the square mile of Broughty Ferry to Monifieth Fief in central Dundee. So uh, all heavily influenced by Jim McLean. Uh, impeccable standards based on repetition, based on a simple idea. And a simple idea was, I suppose, what we'd call the modern Scottish style, which is all about one and two touch passes through midfield, getting the ball forward quickly, but not not a direct, not what you would call a direct style of play at all. Quick build up, putting players under pressure, getting the ball in behind them. Just a relentless attacking game. Um, so, I guess the teams that you probably bet would be most associated with that would be Alex Ferguson's Aberdeen team, obviously Jim McLean's Dundee United teams. If you think particularly about the way that they played and in Europe, no respecters of reputation whatsoever, uh, just relentless uh, attacking football, attacking teams, player, just teams that would just really, really go for it. And uh, I think that that would be the style of play he would be associated with, which I get. Which again, I think for a younger audience looking back, that would maybe have known him from the end of his career, I think they'd find that hard to believe. But if you go and look at that Aberdeen team that uh, took Rangers to the last day of the season, to win the title in I think nineteen nineteen ninety one. May have the date wrong there. Um then I think you would find that that, that was really the kind of that, that was a that was a good representation of the football that, that jockey would ideally have played. And and I think if you look at his career, there's a certain sense of regret that he didn't get to work with players of that level all the time throughout his career in the way that maybe Alex Ferguson did and, and certainly Jim McLean did. And I and I think had he done so, certainly that would be according to, you know, people like Archie Knox that knew all those characters, then and Craig Brown also, then I think he'd have been a very, very top level coach and, and I mean a you know, a, a world class renowned coach rather than a coach who's renowned within coaching circles in the United Kingdom.
0: Do you think that's it now? He's is that retirement is that what's going to happen now? Will he be employed again? And why does he find himself unemployed really?
5: Well, I, I think it's a I think it's a function of fashion. I think it's a function of things moving on and I think it's a function of the people that hire people in football clubs are not football people, therefore they have a certain perception of people which is based on a kind of personality beauty contest and I think people would be worried about appointing Jockey because Jockey's 100% true to his word, he's forthright if he has an opinion to express, he probably seems like a player who's, or a coach, rather, who's probably too straight, too straightforward for the modern day, you know, in terms in terms of his mentality, in terms of the way that he relates to people. But the but the beauty of that is, is that everybody knows where they stand with Jockey, and he's one of the kindest, generous, most gentle people you would find. Uh, you know, as you find with all these people, there's a there's a kind of flip side to the public persona, and the and the private man is just a wonderful human being.
0: Next. John Sperling tells us about his piece, and then, to serenade us out, some poetry. Stephen Watt
3: with Waiting Game. My latest piece for for Nutmeg is about a very quirky, archetypal, kind of late 60s TV quiz for footballers. It wasn't about football, but it was for footballers, and it's called Quizball. And uh, the reason I I kind of went to Nutmeg with it is because it was... um, uh, a very, very good example of how Scottish teams, um, not all of them, um, the you know, the leading light series say, in Scotland, were able to to rise to the fore. Um, and I think that um, it, it really is a, a, a very, very good historical piece, if you see what I mean, simply because there's so little footage of Quizball that actually exists. So it went out at prime time, 6.30 on BBC uh, One. Um, And it was launched in 66, the year, obviously, that England uh, won the World Cup. David Vine presented it, who went on to to front superstars, question of sport and and ski Sunday. Uh, He initially uh, fronted it. And, yeah, the the premise is that you would have two teams um, in in front of you, uh, two teams of four. You'd have three footballers or a manager on the team and a special guest. And then David Vine would fire questions at them. So the rules were supposedly quite simple. Although I have to say that I watched the only episode that, that still exists in its entirety. It's Arsenal against Nottingham Forest with a very strong Scottish connection, as we'll see. And I was able to work out the rules as we went along. So... The team that wins the kickoff question, so David Vine will put a kickoff question, first fingers on the buzzers, they would get first dibs. So the team that wins the kickoff question begins proceedings, and then the team captain chose which of the four team members would answer the question and the difficulty of the question. So there are various routes to go, which were later shown on an illuminated kind of subutio-style ball behind David Vine's head. And they range from easy to a a really, really difficult one. So that's how you get to goals. Now, the opposing team could tackle the opposition at any point by buzzing in on the the hardest, uh, sorry, on a a question, not the hardest question, but they could buzz in on the the first three in terms of difficulty. And then, (laughs) it's not finished yet. If the opposition team buzz in and then get that question wrong, they score an own goal. So I hope that that is reasonably clear. I would suggest that if your listeners are still unclear, then they watch that first episode on on uh, YouTube and, uh, and, and clarify the rules for themselves. But that, as far as I can gather, were the rules for Quizball.
0: By stereotype, quite complicated for, for footballers. And yet... It showed some real sharpness in the minds of players. And one Ian Yaw, or ex of, of Dundee, and then, of course, your team, Arsenal, was described by the Radio Times as an intellectual revelation. Tremendous.
3: he was indeed um, judged as a, uh, an intellectual revelation. So in that first series that Arsenal won, he was he was alongside uh, manager Bertie Mee. Ironic, because Bertie Mee didn't actually like the cameras much. Terry Neal. And a DJ Jimmy Young, he was he was on there, but yeah, he was asked um, a, a raft of questions, which he he did well. I mean, some of them were he was asked what John Dory and Tench were or are, and he responded um, coarse fish. Now <laughs> the, the, the radio has particularly picked out that response, and and you actually said that anybody would have thought he won the Brain of Britain contest <laughs> reading the fan mail. He, uh, he didn't um, kind of uh, agree. And, and the other questions you faced were which shape has five sides? Which flag has a skull and crossbones on it? Perhaps not the most testing of questions. This one was quite a good one. What are Nimbus, is it Kiris or Cirrus and Cumbus examples of? And obviously he got cloud formations. So Ian, yeah, was the, was the star. Of the of the first series of of quiz ball in '66, which which uh, which Arsenal went on to went on to win,
0: and of real interest to Celtic fans was the fact that Billy McNeil was
3: involved. That's right. So by the late '60s, um, Celtic had uh, had entered the fray '68, '69, and it was a it was a hell of a lineup. I mean, you had Skipper um, um, Billy McNeil, as you say? You had Jim Craig. Now Jim Craig. Was unusual for a footballer in that before he played for Celtic full time, he actually studied dentistry at Glasgow University. And after football, he became a full time dentist. I mean, you know that's very very unusual. Mm. Uh, after he retired in '73, he also had uh, had uh, uh, Willie Wallace, who we'll return to shortly, and John Kearney, known again to many Scottish listeners for his one man Robbie Burns show at the time. So
0: you mentioned Wallace there. A few uh, bloopers came up, of course. One included him when he was asked, who or what is a Gary Owen? What did he reply?
3: That's right. I mean, um, a Gary Owen is an up and under in rugby. But with Wallace, being a bit of an archetypal, archetypal footballer, was well into his uh, horse racing um and uh, he actually answered a racing tipster because there was actually a guy called Barry Owen who was <laughs> a horse racing pundit. Um on the on the Daily Record. Um he later on in the early seventies he excelled himself again. Um he was asked by the was it David Vine I can't remember if he was host by then but the, so the the um. The question, the dog star is the brightest star in the night sky. What's its more scientific name? And he responded, Pluto, which I do like, rather than the correct answer, Sirius. So, uh, so yeah, Willie Wallace, hell of a player, not, not, not the best quiz team contestant.
0: <laughs> and by way of old firm equality, uh, you talk about the fact, sadly, footage of the Rangers quartet of the early 1970s has been lost. They gave a fantastic answer when asked about some famous buildings.
3: That's right. They were, they were shown a photo of the, the soon-to-be-completed Sydney Opera House. And it had you know, been in the media a lot. It's, uh, it's um, um, a wonderful construction to look at. You'd imagine that anyone would know what it was. But when they were asked to identify it, they, they come up with the answer, the Taj Mahal. Which I, I also quite like. So yeah, there's old firm equality there in ridiculous <laughs> answers. That's true.
0: <laughs> really lovely detail in there, and, and it was just to see the name Alex Ferguson.
3: Yeah, I mean Fergie um, was is notoriously competitive in whatever he does, as we all know, um, and that expands expands to quizzes as well. So when Fergie was at Falkirk in the, during the tail end of his of his playing career. Um, he happened to be on the Falkirk team with Andy Roxburgh, you know, who, who was later part of Fergie's backroom staff at the 86 World Cup and went on to manage Scotland. Um, anyway, so Andy Roxburgh was, and we go back to horse racing again here, um, not a horse racing fan. He was asked which jockey um, had won the, the the Grand National. This was when they were playing Everton. In a, in a quarter final in 1970, so you've got Fergie um, furiously trying to whisper um, the answer to him. Um, Roxburgh panicked uh, and blurted out uh, Lester Piggott. Now, the winner of the of the national that year was Eddie Harty Senior, who rode Highland um, Highland Wedding. Um, and you know Lester Piggott, in fairness, was the most famous jockey of that era. But obviously, um, because Andy Roxburgh doesn't, didn't know about horse racing, um, he wasn't aware that Lester Piggott was a, uh, a flat race jockey, not a not a not a steeplechase one. Um, Fergie was fuming. Um, actually, audibly offered up Jesus Christ on prime time TV. I'm just gutted. This episode is no longer available, maybe someone in some, there's one in Attic or Garage somewhere. And, and then Michael Crick wrote an excellent um, book, the, the Many Sides of Alex Ferguson. And um, he, he spoke to Michael White, who's quite a well-known Falkirk historian. He said Fergie was absolutely apoplectic. He was, he was embarrassing how angry he was. And then when Roxburgh trotted out for the next Falkirk home game, the fans serenaded him with the chance of Lester Piggott, Lester Piggott.
6: I repent my frustrations. I welcome the exasperation felt when players creep up touchlines to take throw-ins. Diving, corporate-sponsored named stadiums. I take it all back. The right-footed left-backs, the left-footed right-backs, players who could've had a hat-trick but couldn't even stick one in the onion sack. Behold my white flag. Stalls may sell their half-and-half scars. Teams are permitted to be drawn from their non-existent hat. Opposition can steal ten yards if we could only please have our football back. I will not grumble at the phrase six-pointer. Nor pointless third kits designed by angry kids with luminous markers. Of course we all need to buy that strip. TV is correct to enforce streaker censorship. I will undergo anger management to accept undisclosed transfer fees, team sheets in numerical order, stadium clocks counting down, games being filmed on ancient camcorders, and parking the bus, strikers, silly fouls, bookings for pulling off shirts or midfielders being disemboweled, ball boys time-wasting tactics, fair-weather fans throwing in the towel because this waiting game is unfavourable for anyone's health, depriving us of its faults, foibles, drags, all its glorious shortcomings and drawbacks is what spurs us on, keeps us coming back, just as much as all its charms.